beautiful human. Thanks for letting us into your ears today. We are about to get to know Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. I am so excited. We're going to talk OK Human, Van Weezer. I mean, we're going to go back to Blue Album. Pinkerton comes up. Yeah, we have a lot to discuss. I'm really excited. Uh, By the way, today's conversation is sponsored by Total Wireless. Do amazing. And I'm begging you to subscribe to this podcast, share it with those you care about. And yeah, let's dive in. Here's our conversation with Rivers Cuomo. Hello, beautiful human. It's so crazy that I'm about to say this, but uh, my name is Zach. That is Nan. Hello. And in the studio with us right now, we have Rivers Cuomo. It's a a really big deal for many, many reasons that you're here. So we thank you for being here and giving us time and energy. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I'm I'm happy to be here. You are our first in-studio guest. and um, Whoa. It's been 15 months. Whoa. (laughs) It's wild. And it's uh, to say that we're starting with a bang is an understatement. Um, Is it weird, honestly, to be called a legend? Like, do you think about that at all? Um, Am I a legend? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, a little bit, I guess. It's a little weird. Is it weird to hear, like, like, does that add responsibility? Does that add weight to music moving forward? Have you, do you think, you obviously don't think about it often. No, I don't think about it. I just, uh, I I do the same thing I, I was doing when I was a teenager, just picking up a guitar or sitting at the piano and trying to write something that's on my mind and make myself feel better and then go out and play it for other people and rock out and it's uh just what i love to do like so ultimately right when you're making music who are you making it for is it for yourself today in 2021 yeah i guess more and more it's feeling like i'm just making the stuff that that gets me off that i that i enjoy and uh often it seems like who the heck is going to like this? And it's like I'm drawing on some really old traditions like classical music and uh, Beethoven. It's like, hey, this is kind of, uh, what? how do you say, like irrelevant or or whatever. But um, I love it and it feels really good. So we'll see what happens. Why do you think it resonates today? Well, most of the time it doesn't, but every every once in a while you get a song that for some reason, and I, I don't know the reason, it's just like, wow, suddenly everyone's like, whoa, did you hear that song? And um, everyone starts playing it and coming to shows, and I wish I knew why. I'd do it every time. So you don't think there's a formula today? Uh, no, um, not, not that I know. <laughs> do you wish there was a formula? Uh, if, if, well, I don't know. Uh, I guess, like, if if I were playing a video game, I, I'm not looking up the cheat code or anything. I like the challenge, I guess. But as somebody who's coding right now, you know, that's all based on formula, right? Like, this plus this plus this plus this equals something so much bigger. Yeah, that's true. I, I really got into computer programming and writing all these little robot scripts to, to do my boring work in my studio for me. So- <laughs> And and they are feeding off these spreadsheets that you've been creating for years, correct? Yeah. I mean, it all started just like uh, uh, with pen and paper. Like you get an idea, you jot it down, and then you, over the years, you, you accumulate this giant pile of ideas, and it's hard to sift through. So I put it all in spreadsheets around 2001, because then you can sort and you can filter. And 
Um, but then like five years ago, I started putting computer programs and now it's like on my phone, I can ask my phone, uh, give me an idea, a chorus in the key of C at 120 BPM and it'll, it'll give me all my ideas that fit those criteria. How often are you adding to the idea bank? Uh, well, once a week I improvise for like three hours. Got I just it. improvise and then I go back and listen to it. And there's usually like five really cool ideas in there. Um, and then as far as lyric ideas, they just pop into your head like maybe once a day, like some random thought or concept. So, yeah. So you're always feeding the beast. Got to feed the beast, yeah, because I'm, I'm always draining the beast too. I'm always uh, writing and looking back through the old ideas and sticking them in a song. Well, you are able to release music at a rate that most artists can't even begin to wrap their mind around. Like, you have two albums out in the span of just a couple months. And I know that the story is related to the Hello Megator, right? Like, yeah. OK Human was the, the plan, but it was orchestral. It was not something that you can, you know, kind of fit between Fall Out Boy and Green Day and really rock out to, essentially, right? Yeah. So we were like, OK, let's let, hold on. We'll, we'll put this this hard rock album on hold. We're going to go make this very introverted, quirky album with strings and piano. That's going to be really cool. So that that came out, and now we're going back on the Hello Mega Tour. It's time to put out the rock album. So basically, whatever the world is throwing at us, we want to have a record ready, <laughs> Weezer record ready. So how does it start? Like, are you given production, and then you reference the program that you built to help you generate inspiration? I think it 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 starts like it always did with imp- improvisation. It's just just jamming and jamming and not thinking about anything and then going back and sifting through the, all that junk and finding the really cool ideas. Would you say the two albums are opposite of one another, Van Weezer and OK Human? They kind of are, yeah. I mean, at, the, at heart, though, it's always got to have like a catchy melody and it's got to feel like by the end of the song, you got to feel uplifted and emotional. So they any Weezer record's going to have that in common, but... Yeah, Van Weezer rocks really hard. It's meant for the stadium tour with Green Day and Fall Out Boy. And then OK Human is, you know, it's beautiful orchestra music. And uh, it's a re- dream come true for me to be able to do that. Was that like one of, when you think about goals, was working with an orchestra that's big and full on that list? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always thought we would do it. I didn't think it would take this long into our careers, um, but kind of just got into a groove of doing classic Weezer-style records. And um, maybe it took this pandemic to really encourage us to do something super different and uh, is a real dream come true. In fact, we just played it with the L.A. Philharmonic down at Disney Hall. And, man, just sitting there at the piano surrounded by the orchestra is is gorgeous. It's different than anything. Yeah. It's, It's different than the wall of Marshall Stacks. And, yeah. Let's go the opposite from orchestra to acoustic. Do all of your songs sound good and play well in an acoustic setting? Pretty much. I think so. Like, that's the goal is I want to be able to write songs that sound good on acoustic or piano. Just one person in an instrument from beginning to end and not rely too much on the feel of the track or uh, the production and the cool modern sounds. Um, Because anybody can do that. You can add that on later, but... and sometimes you get tricked into thinking you have a cool song when in fact you just have a cool sound there's two different things yeah 
is it true that every good song could be played with nothing? I don't know. I, uh, may, maybe not. I mean, because there's, I don't, I don't know. Like, I was going to say maybe there's some rap songs that sound amazing, but if you just heard somebody sitting there with an acoustic guitar rapping it, it might not sound cool, but maybe it would sound cool. <laughs> so when, you, when you're starting all these songs on OK Human, you're starting them just on the piano, right? Yeah, it's all written on the piano. So did you know how to conduct an orchestra, or how do you take just the piano and build these songs out? Well, as it turns out, a lot of composers have always started at the piano, and something about the instrument just really lends itself to um, passing off the, the different voices on the piano to an orchestra. It's like, okay, so the, the left hand is, is going to be the double basses and the cellos, and then the right hand is going to have the violins and violas. And yeah, it's the, the whole orchestra is contained in the piano. I, I just love it. Um, that being said, I've never had the experience of going through the orchestration process before. So to me, it's just they sounded like regular piano songs. And then we gave them to a professional orchestrator. Um, and when I got to, when he got to the studio and started playing it, then when I heard it for the first time. It's like, yeah, there's all the parts I was writing at the piano. But now I'm hearing it back from this orchestra. Man, it sounds incredible. Yeah. Was there ever a time when you were making that album, though, when you're, like, reaching for the guitar, you're like, oh, I could just put the guitar here? and Or were you just like, no guitar, not touching it, <laughs> not even thinking about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was really excited to put the guitar down, finally, mm-hmm. for once, because um, it's my first instrument. I've always relied on that. It's, it's like breathing to me. It's so easy and natural. I wanted to do something totally different and challenging. Van Weezer... Hero, I believe it's an important song for many reasons. Uh, How did that record begin? It sounds like it's from the perspective of somebody who's questioning the legitimacy of superheroes, you know? Well, the the whole album began um, at one of our shows. I think it was 2018. We were touring with the Pixies, and we all grew up on heavy metal, but when it came time to do our first album in 94... At that point, metal was like at its low point as far as popularity goes. So we were like, okay, we don't really, we're going to pretend not to know how to do heavy metal guitar. We'll just do this very simple power chord thing. And it wasn't until 2018, I was on stage and in between songs, I randomly happened to go like two-handed tapping Eddie Van Halen thing just as a goof. And the crowd went insane. And of course, I did it again, and then I, you know, started doing these flashy guitar techniques, and the guitar, and the and the audience just loved it. So I started to do it, and more and more, and then I was like, "Man, we got to make a whole album like this." But it takes, but but so it takes years to get it done. Well, that was 2018, right? Yeah, well, yeah. So we we started Van Weezer in 2018. Um, I get I get confused. Um, yeah, so. We were going to put that one out, and just as we're about to set that whole thing up and go out and and rock on the Hella Mega tour, our man, you know, the pandemic happened. The whole tour gets postponed. We can't we can't even jam in the same room anymore. So there's just no way we could put that record out, and so we just put it on the shelf for a couple years. But the stories sound so like relevant to today. (laughs) Is that the key? I mean, obviously, there's no formula to a song that could last forever. But there is something about timeless relevancy, right? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I love lots of old music and I'm always looking for classic songs and not, nothing that's too, too trendy that, that's going to be, you know, out, outgrown in a year or two. So, yeah, just great stuff. Beatles, Beach Boys. You talk about choruses a lot in a lot of the stuff that I've read about you and the importance of a chorus, something mm. catchy. What was the hardest chorus to come up with and what was the easiest? Well... Choruses tend to be, I think, the easy the easy part because it's like you either have it or you, you don't. don't. There's not much you can really do to work on it. Um, and one? then the verses, like you have to struggle, especially like the second verse. Like, gosh darn, well, I already said what I wanted to say. What else can I say? <laughs> I, I, I'm interested by the perception, like how you start records. Like Beverly Hills, that's a song that you started based on you being, I think it was like at the Greek or the Hollywood Bowl, and it was you thinking of what it would be like to be essentially a random person who ends up marrying an established celebrity. Yeah, it was the Hollywood Bowl. And I was just happened to be flipping through the program and there was a, an article in the program about the pop group Wilson Phillips and who, who are the daughters of uh, 60s rock icons and, and, and then they're, they're celebrities themselves, obviously. So, and at the time I was single and like really wanting to be with somebody and wanting to get married and like move on to that stage of my life. And I was just thinking, oh, I'd love to be married to a celebrity. Um, that'd be really cool. And I just started fantasizing about it. And I went home and wrote the song Beverly Hills. That song, there's just this strong air of not fitting in. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't writing it from the perspective of some imaginary, normal, non-celebrity person. I mean, that's really how I felt about myself is just. Like, I'm just kind of like this celebrity loser, and I, I don't really fit in with the other celebrities, and I wish I could marry into that crowd. It'd be really cool, but... Do you feel like Weezer has, ma like, mastered not fitting in to the point where you actually fit in? Because your cultural contribution is pretty significant. Uh, that's a funny thing to master, but I, I suppose if anyone's mastered it, we have. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and sometimes I guess sometimes people really dig our songs, and uh, they really they really relate to that feeling of being an outsider. Which song changed your life? Um, from the outside, I would say from the kitchen tape, "Say It Ain't So," but you're the guy. Which of our songs changed, changed your life? Yeah, uh, yeah. From that first record, the, we had a song called "The Sweater Song," which was like that was the first song that the radio played, and. I remember the first time hearing it on the radio. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, and my roommate woke me up. Wake up, they're playing it on the radio. And, uh, you know, we were just screaming, jumping around the bedroom. and uh, So that was a real life changer for sure. Do you think that record would have been a hit without the conversation that was woven throughout <laughs> it? You know, that conversation was a last-minute addition. Because um, you had sound effects. Yeah, we had samples. Sound. This is back when the, the rules around sampling were, were much less clear. So we had all these samples in there, like these lines from Star Wars, Darth Vader talking and all that. And, you know, the album was done. We're like, this is cool. And at the last second, the label was like, you can't put that out. You have to put something else on. So we, we just had our friends t um, talking as if they're at this party and they're <laughs> bored and, you know, just rant. They're like the kind of talk you hear at the parties we go to in those days. And... Uh, yeah, it really, really jumped out on the radio because you don't just hear people talking in the middle of a song. But it's something that follows you today, right? Like Van Weezer, there's two moments where there's conversations at the top and bottom of a record. 
Um, I think it was all the good ones. Or oh yeah, you're yelling at somebody for filming something. Or no, oh. no, no. Uh, I need some of that. There's a conversation right. at the back end. Rick, Rick Ocasek, yeah. <laughs> um, Rick Ocasek from the Cars produced a couple of our albums, including our first album. It's just great guy. So we had this recording of him, uh, of a conversation we had with him and. Uh, he actually sang a verse on the song. We couldn't get it cleared uh, by the time the record came out, but it's very cool. It's a very Carsy type song. So we miss him and, and hope that version can come out someday. Wow. You talked about the sweater song and that an incredible, incredible record that kind of changes a lot. It changes a lot for music at large. But what changed your creative scape was college. And, hmm. and a lot like, is that fair to say that like Harvard did change the way you make music? To a certain degree? Yeah, well, I went there to study music. I was in, I started as a music major, and um, I got serious in, seriously into classical composition and music history, learned all about it, and it came back with our, our second album, Pinkerton, which was much more complicated and sophisticated and, uh, you know, like 32 chords per song instead of three. It was, it was pretty, uh, it was a big jump, and... I mean, apart from that, I was taking poetry classes and literature classes and getting exposed to all kinds of great artists. And it's, you know, it got me excited to, to reach as high as I can. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And you're exposed to so many different levels of society, too. You know, I, I, I believe that there was moments where you would walk on campus and you'd see kids wear Weezer shirts and they wouldn't even recognize you. Yeah, yeah, that was that was trippy. Uh, <laughs> um, nobody, that whole first year of... of college nobody knew who I, no, nobody recognized me nobody knew who I was it wasn't until like the last week before finals I was like I just dropped it in a conversation with some kid like oh you, you know that's actually my band that you guys are talking about and they they totally tripped out and from there everyone everyone figured it out do you think um, that experience helped you have <laughs> lasting success uh, the the experience of going to college or the experience of being a um, you know an anonymous person again or- I, the, the combination because there is like you go to college after you have this huge album blue is big and you have the opportunity to experience society in a way that a lot of people at least within the era that I've been making radio so the last fifteen years when I see somebody blow up normalcy's gone mm. you know the concept that you can blow up and then you could be nobody. And you're not just nobody in like normal life. You're nobody in this, sorry for the word, but like a cesspool of just kids and the future and the smartest versions of the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then I went back again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I lived in the dorm. It's like um, at that point, everyone or, you know, most kids in the dorm knew who I was. But um, I just seemed to bring can't believe it's ironic that I'm saying this, but I bring, I guess I bring this cloud of normality around me wherever I go. So like people very quickly get over the celebrity thing and they just think of me as a regular person. Um, and so I, I've never, I, yeah, I, I guess 
I pretty much feel normal wherever I go. Now we all wear masks all the time, so it's, uh, I feel very anonymous. Island in the Sun. How did the hip hip come to be? Oh, that's just one of those things that pops out of your mouth when you're, you know, I, did, I didn't even think of it when I was writing the song, but rather I'm in the studio just doing the vocals, the song's rolling, the verse hasn't come in, and I just go hip, hip, and uh, didn't think much of it, but now it's like, oh, that's the coolest part of the song. Does that song have a meaning to you today? Like, what, how do you see it? How do you, how do you define it in your life? It's just a, such a cool, nice song. It's one of those songs that I was not trying to do anything. There was zero ambition. It was just like, oh, let's see. I'll do, do these chords and this melody. And, oh, okay, I'm done. And you don't think anything of it. And then 20 years later, it's it's our most streamed song by far. And uh, it's really taken on this huge life um, years later. Um, it's, it's just a mystery. What song has surprised you that you've put out into the world? Africa. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. That was um, one of the greatest things that happened to Toto in recent years. Yeah, yeah, and to us. <laughs> it's, uh, it was just a joke. Just, I mean, not, not, a, not a, any ill will there. It was just like this goof, um, internet goof thing we put out, and... 24 hours later, it was number one on iTunes and all the radio stations started playing it. And it's like, oh, my goodness, we are going to be playing this song at every show for the rest of our career. (laughs) But there is a part of your process where you enjoy trying to interpret songs that you've heard, right? Like uh, you you try to almost duplicate in a Weezer style and then you hold it and you go back to it weeks later and it has new meaning to you. What part of covering a song fulfills you? Oh, it's true. Yeah, I love covering songs um, more more than our audience loves hearing them. So there's a bit of a <laughs> conflict there. Um, I just, when I was a teenager, that's all I did. I hadn't thought to write my own songs yet. I just loved playing great songs, other people's music. They do all the work and then I just get to enjoy it as a singer and guitar player. Um, and there's no pressure because um, if the audience is like not responding it's like ah it's not my fault i didn't write it (laughs) um and i i like learning uh and i feel like i get influenced as a singer and as a writer just by repeating somebody else's song over and over it's like oh yeah then i i've i've uh, absorbed this way to pronounce a word or a, a, a a chord change something like that i always learn you're surprised by africa's success but do you understand it today or are you still trying to figure it out? I'm not trying to figure it out, but I don't understand. I mean, it's that song is the the Toto version is bigger than any song from the 20th century in terms of streams or how much people want to listen to it. Yeah. It's uh, bigger than any Beatles song or Elvis song. It's just it's insane. It, yeah, and it's an incredible song. But, but yeah, there's something so mysterious about it that I don't understand. We're talking about all your hit songs, and you also have a song called One More Hit. Can you explain why you wrote that one? <laughs> uh, well, it was literally, I mean, the, the, the desire was just to uh, write a song about um, how, how I wish I had another hit song. <laughs> it's kind of meta, I guess. Were you not feeling confident in what you guys were releasing, or were you just, you just saying... Well, I hope one of these takes off like some of the other ones. Yeah, I can't remember what happened. It was probably something like got some bad news from the manager like, oh, sorry, guys, your your new singles, the radio stations don't like it. Uh, 
sorry, and, you know, back to the drawing board. And so, you know, that's emotional. That's like, it's hard to take as a writer. So, uh, but it's, you can use it for inspiration. So that's how I wrote that song. And where, where did the uh, pre-course come in where you say, please, daddy, please, daddy? <laughs> that's so funny, man. There's another thing, like, I, I didn't think anything of it when I wrote it. But... You wrote, please, daddy, please, daddy, and thought nothing of it? Yeah, it's... <laughs> well, I'll t- I'll t- I think I remember my train of thought. It was like, okay, so my desire, I, I'm kind of jonesing for another hit song like a drug addict joneses for another hit of their mm-hmm. drug whatever whatever they're addicted to so i'm kind of the lyrics are kind of about a drug addiction um as a metaphor for my addiction to being successful so i'm just writing from the point at a point of a um, point of view of a drug addict like uh, like pump it up into me daddy please daddy that sort of thing which makes sense if you're yeah. thinking of drugs but for a weezer fan to hear rivers cuomo come out and say you know, but pump it up into me, please, Daddy. It's just, it's, it was a little surprising and, and questionable. Well, you talk about wanting the number one hit, but then I think on OK Human, weren't you talking about how you were so consumed with numbers at one point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, that's the thing is like, uh, as an artist, like, I, I want, I want that affirmation from the world, like, like some kind of, sign that i what i've done is is valuable and worthwhile and so you you hear like oh your song is doing well so you look at the chart and oh yeah it's climbing up the chart it's doing well and you see all these numbers and but i have this tendency that i'll keep looking like oh let me now let me look at this service or this streaming platform and i keep looking until i start seeing some numbers that look bad and then i start to feel bummed out it happens every time so then i wrote the song numbers which is like calling myself out for that habit of looking online at statistics that tell me I'm not worthwhile. Bad habit. That's yeah. a larger message that should be received because you're essentially like looking for the bad news, right? Yeah. I think, and even non-musicians can probably relate because they'll, they'll end up looking at their likes or yeah. their followers or retweets, whatever. What do you think about the music world today? Is it better or worse for artists? Ah. Uh, I, I I think it's I think it's better. It feels like it, um, when we came up in the mid '90s, it was like record companies were were so powerful, and we artists didn't really know what the heck was going on business wise, and we got a much smaller piece of the pie, and we just had so much less control over what was going on in our lives, and. Uh, now everything seems much more transparent and a lot of middlemen have been cut down and uh, it, it seems like a, a good time to be an artist. That being said, there's like there's so many distractions. I mean, there always was. There was, I remember be, people being distracted by magazines a lot, but I mean, that doesn't happen. But of course, there's the internet and this is, everything's flashing in front of your eyes. It's hard to, to really dig down deep and, and be quiet and come up with some cool ideas. So that's challenging. The democratization of music is pretty high. Like anybody has a chance to break through, and yeah. but but also at the same time, old songs have a chance to take on new meaning and new life. Yeah, in the old days, it was a little bit more like whoever had the most power could, you know, they could give their uh, a song a real push, essentially force it, it down society's yeah. mouth. Didn't always work, but it's much more like that, and that just doesn't 
it doesn't work anymore. And and like you said, a totally obscure or even old song can, for some reason, people can decide we love Africa and we're going to make it huge. And there there you go. It changes everything. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? Because we're 15 albums deep. You've really birthed so many other groups from your work in a huge way. I mean, what what gets like what gets your juices going? How do you how do you want us to talk about Weezer 150 years from now? Uh, just like probably like we we just kept trying to bring good vibes and you know big concerts with with lots of people in harmony and um, really uplifting music and message and uh, but deep and thoughtful at the same time. Uh, God, I, that's a lot to ask for people to think of us 150 years from now, but, but that would be nice. The music will live on, right? Like going back to timeless relevancy, there's so many records that have the ability to take on meaning based on whatever we're facing in that moment. And that's, that's music, right? Like that's, that's true art. Yeah, I mean, who knows what people are they're going to need in their lives 150 years from now. Um, but it might it might be Weezer. Who knows? It might be something that's relatively obscure now. Who knows? <laughs> what song has taught you? The, we, we've talked about songs that have changed your life, but what song taught you the most? It might still be Africa. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, what song has taught me the most? Uh, which of our songs? Yeah, F- from making it. Yeah, maybe... Maybe Say It Ain't So uh, from our first album. Uh, it was, it was, I, I learned that I can go back and so some of the most painful emotions or painful situations in my life and make something so beautiful out of it. So, so beautiful for me personally. And it can heal me and help me move on. And at the same time, it can bring joy and meaning to many other people's lives. It's it's such a wonderful thing that can happen. Wow. I think that may be a song that people listen to 150 years from now. Hmm. I mean, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. Are these songs still just as fun to play live today as they were 20, 25 years ago? Well, it all depends on the audience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like... Playing rock music in front of 10, 20,000, 100,000 people is generally really fun. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's the song is, is new or old. Yeah. How do you build the set list for the Hell Omega Tour? Is that different than what you would build for a, like another Weezer tour? Because you have audiences from Green Day and Fall Out Boy, so you have to make sure everyone is kind of on board for it and like focused on you. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're having those discussions now, and... It's yeah. You have to adapt your set list to the audience. Like, we just played with L.A. Phil, and that was a different kind of set list yeah. than we're gonna do at Dodger Stadium with with Green Day and Fall Out Boy. You got to bring the rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, we're definitely, I, and you have to be flexible too, because you get there the first night, you think you know what it's gonna be like, and then it maybe it's totally different, and you have to be ready to swap some songs out, but. It looks like, you know, some of the 
this, the staples of the 90s hard rock classic Weezer sound. And we wanted we want to do some Van Weezer, our, our new album, which is very suited to that environment. Susie is an incredible producer. You worked with her on that album. Yeah. She is phenomenal. Yeah. How do you choose who you want to work with at this point? Um, well, Susie has been on the team for a while now. Uh, she, but she would always, like, I remember the first time I met her, it, I was just going to work with um, Jake, another producer. And I like, when I'm writing, I like to be alone or with as few people as possible. I'm just like, because I'm I just uh, like, I'm shy, basically. And I went... Um, I don't like to suggest ideas when other people are around. So um, I show up to work with Jake and there's this beautiful young woman sitting there at this in the studio. I'm like, uh, Jake, uh, I don't know if this is going to work, buddy. And he's like, no, trust me, she's really cool. So she was there just working the, the mixing board and engineering. And she just had a great vibe, super chill. And then she ended up producing the vocals on all the sessions for that album. And then she was great. She pushed me so hard. She's like, not just listening to the pitch and the timing, but she's like, you know what? You, I don't, I don't really like you the way you're singing. That can you, cha- you know, cha- can you sound a little more nice or can you smile? You know, all these suggestions. And I like being pushed, and uh, um, I like somebody who sets a real high bar. So she's like a real taskmaster with a whip. Uh- in the studio so she did vocals on a couple albums and then i was like we're gonna make a, a record of a whole record why don't we just have Susie do the whole record she can crack the whip on the rest of the guys in the band too <laughs> and it was perfect for van weezer because i really trusted her because if we're making a hard rock album with another man especially an older man like us and he says yeah that riff is really cool it's like, well, I, is it really cool? Or? <laughs> yeah. I just got another one of me telling me it's yeah. really cool. <laughs> but if this young woman is saying, whoa, that's so cool, it's like, okay, yeah, I guess that is probably cool. I'll take your word for it. It must be rare to get somebody like that who pushes you and is not afraid to say, I don't like the way you did that. Can you yeah. do it again? Yeah, I've worked with so many producers and big name producers, and very often they're just like, yeah, that sounds great, man. You sound amazing. Which I love hearing, <laughs> but you don't get better that way. Yeah, she she gets the best vocals out of me. Going a little full circle here, that may be a part of working with a quote unquote legend, right? Is this fear of telling somebody, "Hey, do it again," because at the end of the day, who knows Weezer better than you? Mm. Is there anybody, Brian, the guys with you? I guess no, like you no. Um, but it's weird when I'm in the room with somebody else, I always defer to them. Like if they say it's good enough, like, okay, cool. I guess it's good enough. And if, if they say it's not good, even if I thought it was great, I'll, I'll guess, well, you know what? That's probably no good. I do the same thing. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> do you ever want to, tr- I mean, you want to trust yourself, right? Yeah. But I think it's a very deep part of my nature. So I'd rather just work by myself. Like, uh, especially when it comes to writing, like I'll just go to my room and, um, go into a deep space and work there for hours and it's, it's great i love it and then you'll go with something almost fi- n- not finished but you'll go with the story ready yeah like uh it's you know i've run most of the field we still got to get across the goal line but uh, i know i'm in a good spot 
OK Human features a remix with AJR. Yeah. I'm really excited because the guys are in the other room. Yeah, I can see they them are. out the window. And I think we should uh, I think we should bring them in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Hello, beautiful human. This is a two-part conversation. Yeah, it's a very special edition. Please go to part two because AJR is going to be joining us. It's an incredibly unique and fascinating conversation. Uh, It's just so cool. So yeah, part two with Rivers Cuomo and now AJR is somewhere on the screen. So please tap it and I'll talk to you over there. Please be safe. Hug your family if you can and don't go to jail. (laughs) Appreciate you.